This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore, and this is The Breakfast Wrap for Friday, February 24th. The weather forecast for today, a cloudy day, a slight chance of some flurries this morning, let alone the breezy side, the high minus six degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, the Toronto mayoralty race date has been set the 26th of June. Number two, major disruptions are coming for the Queen Street streetcar, and the TTC is also announcing schedule changes. Number three, the NDP pushing for an inquiry into Doug Ford's wedding shenanigans. Number four, new figures show Canadian police set a record for deadly force in 2022. And number five, the world observes the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Well, happy Friday to you. Look at that, we made it to Friday. Although it's not that much of an accomplishment. It was a short week for most of us. I know, Nick Mayorano, you had to work on Monday, but uh, I had the day off. And then I had one of those weeks where on Wednesday, I thought it was Thursday. And as comedian Sean Kane used to say, this week it just seems like one day after another. It's a sweet, sweet Friday! Thank you. So let it be declared and recorded. And uh, it was fun listening to that uh, commercial just a moment ago for Hamilton, because that's where I was last night. And that's why I may, I may be a little punchy today, because I've got to an age where if I don't get to bed in time, it's a bit messy. And Hamilton's a long show. They started at 7.30. I think we finished at like, I don't, I don't even remember. I think I got to bed at like 11 o'clock. So not a lot of sleep. But boy, can I ever recommend that show. And we were sitting next to Maureen Holloway, who joins us at 6.50 this morning. So maybe she can weigh in on the show as well. I don't want to take anything away from touring shows. But, I mean, the way it normally works is that you've got a... a certain shopping list of artists who live and work in New York and do Broadway. And then they put together a touring production. And a lot of those people are kind of like aspiring artists who are hoping one day they'll be, they'll be the frontline artists on Broadway. Um, so, you know, sometimes you sort of think, all right, that was good, but I'd like to see the, the other artists do it. No way. This Toronto production, which yesterday, and I have to go into my email to confirm the actual dates and times or whatever, but uh, they announced it's going to have an even longer run in Toronto or residency. It is totally top drawer, just absolutely fantastic. And so had such a good time. It's been a long time since I've sat in a show and realized that, you know, for two and a half hours, I've got a big smile on my face because it's that great a show to watch. But listen, let's start digging into the day's big news, and there are a few stories to unpack. First of all, we have a date. We have a couple of dates, as a matter of fact. Uh, first of all, for the election for the next mayor of Toronto, it's going to happen on June 26. Now, that's an interesting choice. I mean, it's probably as early as we could possibly do it. But it's also, we're into summer by then. I mean, your total mindset is going to be all about summer and sitting on the balcony or in the backyard or on a patio somewhere. So how many people are actually going to turn out to vote? I hope a whole bunch of people, because I think this is going to be an extraordinarily consequential election. We just came off an election cycle where more than two-thirds of Torontonians decided John Tory was their man, and a couple of months later, he's gone. 
And so now we've got to find somebody to finish this particular term and to kind of set the table for the way forward. Because I imagine who's ever elected in the by-election on the 26th of June will stand for re-election in three and a half years. And so what will that administration look like? So uh, City says nominations for mayor will open on the 3rd of April, close on May 12th, advanced polling taking place from June 8th to the 13th. And as you already know, because she said so right here on News Talk 1010, the deputy mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, is not going to run. I don't know if her mind can be changed. We didn't get into that. But I, I, she strikes me as kind of a no-nonsense individual. So I don't think, unlike some other political figures, that she's playing some sort of a game. Like there are certain candidates, well, I shouldn't call them candidates until they declare themselves, but there are certain individuals in politics who will say, no, 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 please, no, 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 no. Yes, would you like, do you, do you insist? At, oh, well, maybe I'll think about it. I don't get that signal from Jennifer McKelvey. I get it from a few other people. Uh, the other date that has been set, yesterday was all about date setting, is budget day. And that'll be the 23rd of March. That's the budget for the province of Ontario. Not a tremendous surprise, just confirmation that we'll be getting those documents. I mean, they're already well into consultations. They've probably already drafted aspects of the budget. Governments generally know what direction they're heading in. So we'll get the final details on the 23rd. And one of the things we definitely learned, it's probably a trend that runs over the last 10, 15 years, but it used to be a budget was this great big secret and you had absolutely no idea what was in it. And if anything leaked out, it could actually endanger the career of the finance minister or somebody in the finance minister's office. Now they kind of roll it out. It's a dance of the seven veils. And so we hear, oh, okay, so that's what you want to do. Oh, are we going to do the basic income? Okay. Um, so we will see as we approach the 23rd where Peter Bethlen Falvey is headed. I have been fairly candid in, in the last while that I, I don't know if I could call myself a fan because I don't think you should be a fan of a politician or a cabinet minister, but I like Peter Bethlen Falvey. I like his direction. I like his thinking. And my only complaint actually would be that we continue to spend money at the same rate that we were spending it under the liberals. And I used to complain about the liberals annual budget. So one of the stories, sometimes we have a story in the desk because, as you know, before we go on the air, we all meet together and we go over all the stuff that we've got and we try to figure out what the overall complexion of the show is going to be. And some days there's a story where I say, okay, there are things we need to learn by nine o'clock when we get off the air. And this story fits into that category. There is a news item today about the Queen Street streetcar and how it could be shut down for about 20 months, starting early May. And all of this is for the construction of the Ontario line. But here is the question I want answered. They have been, and if you've been in the downtown core, you've been subjected to this, they've been restoring the tracks on Adelaide. So, my presumption has always been that streetcar, the Queen Street streetcar, which is the longest streetcar line in the world, 
is going to divert down to Adelaide and then back up to Queen. But the story we're looking at today is about how they're going to be using shuttle buses. So I have to imagine the shuttle buses are probably going to be running between like university and church or something like that, merely because to divert to Adelaide is two streets south, which is a pretty major disruption for an awful lot of people. So we would have the streetcars running from, I'm forgetting, I don't know if this is in your reserve of specialized knowledge, Nick Marano. Uh, it's Long Branch, isn't it? The, um, the termination for the Queen Street streetcar, and then you go out to the beach. So, you know, it is going to be running along that route, but for that portion that is going to be interrupted, and let's face it, it's going to be longer than 20 months. For that portion, I would imagine that they are going to be subbing in um, the shuttle buses. But like I said, we're going to wake up the communications officer and confirm it absolutely before 9 o'clock this morning. Okay, let's get into what Toronto's talking about on this Friday morning with News Talk 1010's John Moore of More in the Morning. Good to see you, John. Hope you're doing well today. Nice to see you. Happy to have made it to Friday. Uh, same here. Absolutely. Okay, well, someone who, of course, uh, two Fridays ago stunned us all, stepped aside, John Tory, last Friday. And now on this Friday morning, we now know the date for when John Tory will be replaced, John. We do. An election date has been set for the 26th of June. Um, I find this interesting for a number of reasons, one of them being it's probably as fast as we can possibly do it, and some people would probably wish that we could elect a new mayor faster. I mean, John Tory was only two and a half months into his new mandate, mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden he's gone. We have an interim mayor, and then we're going to have another mayor who's going to have a shortened term and possibly run for re-election. Uh, but June 26th, I imagine an awful lot of people, Nick, are going to be kind of tuned out by then. We're in a summer mood, so how many people are going to vote? But it's also uh, immediately after Pride weekend, so that's going to be not necessarily an acid test necessarily, but, you know, are people, are candidates going to march in the Pride parade in anticipation of voting day? Yeah, that's interesting, the timing. And even like you said, I mean, it, it's as fast as we could possibly do it, but it is still four months away and there's so much attention on it right now. What's the appetite going to be down the road? So, yeah, we'll definitely watch for that and have conversations about that between now and then. In the meantime, John, I'm not sure which way the windows in your studio's face, but we can always check out the Queen Streetcar uh, around here. Uh, but it's going to shut down for 20 months starting in a couple of months' time. You guys are definitely not going to see that streetcar for a good long time. They're saying a 20-month shutdown, but let's face it, if we judge by how long it took to build the Eglinton Crosstown, which <laughs> yeah. still is not complete, it is not going to be on schedule. Uh, the big question for us at News Talk 1010, and one we're trying to answer this morning, is uh, we're being told that they're going to replace the streetcar with shuttle buses, but I have to imagine this is the longest streetcar line in the world, so uh, they're probably going to be running the streetcar, then putting it on diversion, because, again, in our neighborhood, we know they've been restoring the streetcar tracks on Adelaide, mm -hmm. but the shuttle will probably be running on Queen Street for the stretch between university and church. But anyway, you slice it, it's a major disruption. It's going to go on for a good long time. Meanwhile, there's also announcements from the TTC about service cuts beginning on March 26, affecting about 20% of routes. And in many cases, there's going to be bus routes and in some slight cases, streetcar routes, where you're just going to have to wait a little bit longer for the vehicle to arrive. Yeah, riders are going to really need to pack their patients and I suppose pack onto these shuttle buses as well. Mm. That's going to be quite a scene out here behind us. Uh, another story, a pretty significant story here, John. Canadian police, according to some new numbers, used deadly force at record rates last year. 
These are kind of hard numbers to unpack because it's a new list. So when you create a new index, it's hard to compare to the past. But lethal force by Canadian police officers has seen a steep rise, according to this report, with 2022 being the deadliest year on record. Uh, figures show persistent racial disparities as well. So black and indigenous people are overrepresented amongst those who encounter some level of violence or in some cases deadly force from police forces in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely concerning, but like you said, we got to figure out what the baseline really is there. Uh, in the meantime, we thought about food inflation, or we heard about food inflation numbers from Statistics Canada this week coming in over 11%. And now Loblaws is saying more than 1,000 supplier requests are sort of on Galen Weston's desk, potentially seeing even more prices going up at grocery stores in the coming months. When will it end? <laughs> yeah, I think the future of Galen Weston being the face of Loblaw is probably coming to an end. He was on a conference call yesterday to talk about business interests. And as you mentioned, he said they have over a thousand supplier requests for significant cost increases. And we saw the figures, Nick, this week where inflation is actually beginning to taper off on the general index. But food inflation continues at 11 and 12 percent. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you spoke to Sylvain Charlebois about this, too. But he basically says the two numbers aren't even related to each other in terms of inflation, core inflation and food inflation. It's just sort of hard to wrap your head around, especially when you're at the checkout counter and wondering, how much is this small basket of food necessarily going to cost me? All right. In the meantime, a significant story we're all following today. This is the anniversary, of course, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Ukraine's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. He's pledging to push for victory on this anniversary. The resilience he and his people have shown, John, in the past year has just been quite remarkable. It is incredible. I mean, in many ways, this war is modeled on the World War II model, which was a country trying to take over other people's sovereignty and other people's territory and then trying to hold it. And Vlad Vladimir uh, Putin thought that he was going to invade and Ukraine was going to be his within a matter of days. And here we are a year later. And we're no closer to an end with this war. The Chinese are trying to broker some sort of a negotiated settlement. I don't think that's going to happen. But we'll spend time on our show. I'm sure you'll spend time on your show as well today talking to Ukrainian Canadians talking to people in Ukraine about where this war is and how solid the resolve of the Ukrainian people is Ukrainian people and 50 Western nations kind of corralled and led by the Americans as well so we'll have to watch and see where things go but appreciate this update John always good to talk have a great weekend we'll chat soon that's my friend Nick Dixon over at CP24, our sister television station and as mentioned we are going to observe, commemorate, whatever word you want to use, the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine today. So, 6.35, Canadian MP Yvonne Baker is going to join us. Yvonne Baker is a Canadian of Ukrainian heritage, so we've talked to him a few times about his feelings and impressions of what has been going on in Ukraine. Uh, we're also going to be joined by Mel Melinda Herring, who is a uh, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. She's been a very good Sherpa for us as well in terms of what's been going on in Ukraine. And uh, Adam Zivo is going to join us. Adam Zivo, as a matter of fact, is going to be here at 535. He is a Torontonian who has been in Ukraine on and off, but mostly on since the beginning of the war. And he has remained one of our sort of pulse checks, I guess, when it comes to trying to get a feel for what life on the street is like and what the resolve of Ukrainians is. But here we are a year in, and I don't know that anybody could predict what the end of this conflict will be.
I know, as I mentioned to Nick, that the Chinese are trying to broker a negotiated settlement, but Volodymyr Zelensky has made it fairly clear. He doesn't want to give up any territory. As a matter of fact, he wants Crimea, which was taken over in 2014. He wants it back. And that's probably a no-starter for the Russians. But I imagine it's getting harder and harder and harder for Vladimir Putin to continue to send caskets home and death notices home and make zero progress in Ukraine because they've actually been beaten back. And so it's uh, it's a no-win situation for him. And I guess the only thing we can hope for is that maybe somebody within the power establishment in Russia finally decides that Vladimir Putin's time is done. I always, somebody asked me yesterday, why hasn't somebody in his, his inner circle killed him yet? And I said, have you seen the length of his table? I always thought that the length of the table that he uses for meetings was calculated on the basis of him being able to get out of the room if somebody pulled out a gun before they could actually take him out. 5.38 on a Friday morning. Minus seven, so uh, it's a bit bracing out there. And if I can note one thing, and when I was driving home yesterday, and we were trying to give you an accurate picture of what the morning commute was looking like after the snow had come down, but I, I was thinking to myself going up Avenue, wow, this hasn't been properly plowed. And then I thought I should send a text to John Tory. And then I remembered John Tory is not the mayor of Toronto anymore. And in some respects, I guess maybe he's happy he doesn't have to wear that kind of a thing on a day where it wasn't disastrous, but I just don't think that the snow clearing operation was as good as it could have been. Uh, in the spot break just there, you would have heard publicity for a documentary series called Thunder Bay. And we're actually going to be talking with the guy behind that. He's been a contributor here on News Talk 1010. He's been on roundtables. Ryan McMahon is an Anishinaabe journalist, and he is the guy, the driving force behind this documentary series about a series of murders in Thunder Bay. And so that's at 720 this morning. Right now, let's return to the significance of this February 24th. It is the first anniversary of the invasion by the Russians of Ukraine. And this war has been through many phases. Vladimir Putin thought it was going to be over in days. Then he found out it wasn't. Then there was the fear that the West was going to lose interest and abandon Ukraine. And as a matter of fact, largely because of Joe Biden and the United States, the West's resolve has been renewed actually within the last few days. So it's an increasingly perilous situation for Vladimir Putin, but also it doesn't look like there's any near-term solution to this. The Ukrainians aren't for negotiating and the Russians aren't for retreating. One person who's been a bit of a guide for us on day-to-day -day life in Ukraine is Canadian um, Adam Zivo, who writes for the National Post, and as a matter of fact, has a new column or account as of uh, today, which you can read online. And Adam joins us now from Odessa. It's nice to have you again. It's nice to be back. Okay, so what are your reflections on this first anniversary? I, I realize it's kind of an arbitrary day, but at the same time, now that we're looking at it and saying okay, it's been one year. I'm sure there has to be some emotion and sentiment and reasoning to all of that. What, what are your thoughts? 
Uh, the sense that I get from the Ukrainians in my life is that today is a day of profound exhaustion and sorrow and optimism. Uh, yesterday, many Ukrainians were posting on social media about how a year ago they were enjoying their last day of peace. And now that a year has passed, many wonder how much longer until they can enjoy that peace again. Uh it's been uh, an incredible and horrific journey for Ukrainians. Uh, as you said, there have been so many different phases of the war. And with an impending Russian springtime assault, no one's quite sure what's going to happen next. But what they do know is that no matter what, they have to persevere. In talking with you, one of the fascinating aspects in all of this is how day-to-day -day life continues in Ukraine. So what are things like for you and the people around you in Odessa? Well, in Odessa, things are okay for the most part. And I think that what many Westerners don't understand is that Ukraine is a very large country and life on the front lines and in the cities near the front lines is hellish. Uh, there, everything is destroyed. You know, when I was in Kharkiv, when I was in Izum, uh, when I was in Mykolaiv, it was awful. If you're farther away from the front lines, life continues with some level of normalcy and that's necessary because that helps will give people a sense of dignity and also ensures that Ukraine's economy is able to survive and to give people the livelihoods that they need and to fund the war to some extent. So in Odessa, you know, December and January were very, very difficult. The attacks on the energy infrastructure meant that for most of those two months, we only had about six hours of electricity during the day and some electricity at night. And for the most part, like the city felt catatonic at night but they were just, you know, life continued on in silhouettes and people had prepared by buying generators and stores were essentially these like little islands of lights where people try to live with some level of normalcy. Um, and that was very hard. You know, you get used to it to a certain extent, but it wasn't easy. Now electricity has come back online. So now things feel somewhat normal, but no matter what normalcy there exists in the peaceful regions, there's always a sense of anxiety because we don't know when that could change. I'm four hours away from the front line. Odessa is okay right now, but two hours east of me is Mykolaiv, which is, you know, was partially destroyed. And two hours east of that city is Kherson, which is on the front lines, which was occupied and is currently being shelled every day. So Ukrainians know they can't take any oasis of peace for granted. Now, Westerners and the NATO countries in particular look on Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukrainian resolve and sort of see this Churchillian figure. Is that resolve actually genuine amongst Ukrainians, that, that Ukrainians are just going to continue to fight? Of course. How, how could they not be? They've seen what happens under occupation. And I think that sometimes people forget that occupation is horrific, right? Any liberated area has had the same stories of people being randomly beaten and killed, of torture chambers, of, of mass graves, of the complete eradication or attempted eradication of Ukrainian culture, burning Ukrainian books, banning Ukrainian art. The attempt to take over Ukraine is about cultural extermination and eliminating the existence of an independent Ukrainian nation and russifying it. So for Ukrainians, there is no choice. Any Russian soldiers who are sent into this region have to be killed. Um, and no area can be left unliberated because those are family members, friends, real people who are suffering. Adam, thanks so much for this.
Thank you for having me once again. Adam Zivo writes for the National Post. He has been, he's a Torontonian actually, but he lives right now in Ukraine. And I guess in some ways, the weekend's staging, his performance at the Super Bowl is kind of a metaphor for what life in Ukraine must be like. You remember that? He was running through this hall of mirrors and just constantly being turned around and never quite knowing what direction he was uh, going in. But interesting to hear from Adam that, you know, the resolve in Ukraine is absolute and the backstopping, which is coming at a cost of dollars and armaments, but no lives in the West. So there's there's no sacrifice. I remember told you when I was a kid and my parents subscribed to all kinds of magazines, including Time, and I had to be like six years old but I would leave through Time Magazine and see articles and photographs about the Vietnam War. And it didn't cross my mind because I was too young and stupid to know that Canada wasn't involved. But I used to think, what's gonna happen when I turn 18? Am I gonna be conscripted? Am I gonna end up in the war? That is not the circumstance in the West's sacrifice, whatever it may be, in terms of trying to backstop Ukraine in beating back Russia. This has to be, and maybe there's a war expert out there. Maybe you are. Maybe you're listening right now and you can test me. I can't think of a conflict where, you know, all you had to do was send arms and money and you never had to sacrifice any blood and you could get the outcome that you wanted. And the outcome that the West has wanted forever was to tame Russia, right? It used to be U.S. versus Russia, the two superpowers, now uh, you know, the, we, we have to sweat uh, China, but Russia, in spite of having been, we thought, defeated more or less in the Cold War by Ronald Reagan, the Pope, Margaret Thatcher, and Brian Mulroney and company, here we are with them wreaking havoc in Ukraine with this fever dream of taking over new territory that they will never succeed in doing so. So our second front in terms of beating back the new Russia comes at the cost of Ukrainian blood, but only money and armaments on our part. Let's get back to local. And June 26th, there's your day. So circle it on the calendar. That's the day we are going to choose the next mayor of Toronto. And intriguingly, as I was mentioning to Nick Dixon on CP24, that comes after Pride Weekend. So I don't know, actually, if you think of the entire field of candidates who are proposed, suggested, recommended, already running, I don't know of any of them who would skip out on pride. You know, even the conservative candidates that I have in mind are the kind of people, you know, Brad Bradford's a young guy. He couldn't care less, I'm sure. He's not going to take a pass on pride. But that's going to be the last big push is going to be Pride Weekend and the ability to work cocktail parties and parade day and all kinds of other things in order to try to cement a victory on the 26th. But um, having to wait until the 26th to get a new mayor, I was somewhat heartened when Jennifer McKelvey, who is currently occupying the mayor's office, told us here on News Talk 1010 in her first interview this week, she said, you know, I'm not just sitting here keeping the sea warm. We're going to get some stuff done. But then again, council doesn't come back until the 29th of March. So be interesting to see what's on the agenda come that day. 
It's 5.52 and a bunch of other stuff to uh, get to this morning, including actually one of the five things you need to know is that the NDP is not letting up on Doug Ford and his um, the stag and doe party and now apparently the wedding. And so Myrit Stiles, new leader of the NDP, is calling for an official inquiry. There already was sort of a look-see, I guess we could call it, by the integrity commissioner who said everything was, as the premier would say, tickety-boo. But it really, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. Basically, what we found is that um, there are a number of ways that we think that the premier may have um, actually broken the Members' Integrity Act. And um, that's, you know, there's issues around conflict of interest and influence and some of the gifts, the sense that maybe some money uh, was given. Um, and and so we think that uh, the Integrity Commissioner should be, um, be conducting an investigation. We'll see what he finds. That's Myron Stiles, who appeared on The Rush yesterday afternoon. And I know there are a whole bunch of people out there, especially conservatives and their supporters, who think, oh, let it go. What's the big deal? But I do think there needs to be a pretty intense review of all of this. I've made my views on it quite clear. It's completely understandable. The Doug Ford is friends with a whole bunch of other people in business. But there's something a little too Godfather 1 about his daughter's wedding day and all these envelopes full of money and checks. That's The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.